I do think that eventually we'll have explainable AI, but I think that's an open research area. That's not something that's coming anytime in the next year or two, right? Like the robots are not immediately coming for us. People will spend six months looking for their unicorn, trying to recruit one, when they could have trained one or built one in half that time. Algorithms are human artifacts, and they contain all of the preconceptions of the people who built them. I think there's definitely a myth that every single team at Google has SREs, and that's absolutely wrong. SREs build the platform that everyone else uses. It's almost a failure of complexity if you need to have a dedicated SRE team for your service. In a world where everybody is trying to outcompete each other to get engineers and engineering time is like the scarcest resource, just fix your team and talk about it and you will not have trouble hiring. Hello and welcome to Ollicast, the podcast about observability. I'm Charity Majors, co-founder of Honeycomb.io. And I'm Rachel Chalmers with Marion Ventures. Ollicast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program that helps companies building cloud infrastructure, developer tools, and APIs take their products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic or a speaker, find us on Twitter at Ollicast, O-11-Y-C-A-S-T. Liz, do you have a CS degree? I do, but I got a CS degree about 10 years into my career. Interesting. How did you manage to get a job without a degree? I happened to work as a systems engineer for a few years, and then I managed to parlay that somehow into a job working at Google as a site reliability engineer. Well, this seems like a good time to introduce yourself. Yeah, so hi, I'm Liz Fong-Jones. I'm a staff site reliability engineer at Google, and I work on the customer reliability engineering team. So my job is to help people make good use of their public clouds by building and operating reliable systems. Nice. When I think about computers, I guess... It feels to me like it's been a wild, wild west for so long. This is definitely what helped me get my start as a music major dropout. But it feels like there's an increasing professionalization lately. How do you feel about that? I have mixed feelings about it. I think that it is good for us to develop communities of practice and figure out what's important to us. I think it's really important to have on-ramps for people to, as you say, kind of allow people from any background to find their way into our profession rather than saying, you know, you must have a degree from a top 10 school in computer science. Right, because professionalization has two meanings. One is the gatekeeper stuff where it's uh, preserving this domain so that only lawyers can make money on it. The other is like the Canadians having that iron ring for engineers, which I think is super cool because it's a commitment to public safety. I'd really like to have the second kind of engineering professionalism. I really don't want to see CS turn into like a a legal profession where you have to pass the bar exam. Or a barber profession. States will, you know, enact these things where you have to have a certain certification just to make it a cartel. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, It's been really interesting because given all the economic trends in this country, this has been one of the only avenues for people who haven't had the money to go to college to make a really nice living. And definitely when I came up in the 90s, being a sysadmin, which is what we did when we rode dinosaurs to work instead <laughs> of SRE stuff, most of the uh, the sysadmins I knew had English degrees or history yeah. degrees or theatre or art history. And it was awesome because we'd sit around drinking and, and talking about Monet and computers. And Turns out computers aren't that hard. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and they really reward tenacity and curiosity and exploration. And communication. And communication. It's interesting that you say curiosity, and we'll probably come back to this, but I have a theory that people write the software that reflects their truest self. 
So Edith Harbour, who's basically Leslie Nope, has written, you know, software which is binders full of processes so that you can have backup plans for your backup plans for your backup plans. And Charity, you've written software which is about your curiosity and your desire to explore the world. Yeah, I think curiosity is definitely, when I talk to students who are interested in getting into SRE, I tell them that curiosity is the number one trait that I look for. And lust for power. Don't forget <laughs> lust for power. And whiskey. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I say that jokingly, but there is an element of having a God complex. You know, just, I can make all these amazing things happen, and you just get high off that. Is that just me? Not just you. Okay. <laughs> all right. Moving on. Well, it's actually an interesting segue to the next question, because part of the, the CS question is what kind of people excel in the tech industry? And it's not only people who know how to code. It's not even primarily people who know how to code. It's systems thinkers, and those people can come from anywhere. I think that question is intimately related to the anxiety people have over AI and ML and being automated out of a job. Let's talk about whether automation can replace human technologies or human approaches. I've actually had many Google engineers tell me confidently that there's no point in building Honeycomb because AI is coming, like they've seen this at Google, and pretty soon there's going to be no need to understand our computers because the robots will do it for us. And they say it in exactly the same tone of voice that they used to ask me why I was bothering to study English. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Very confident. I'm really disappointed in those Google engineers who are telling you that because the truth of the matter is that Computers are really good at doing things that are kind of rote. They are not really great at delivering insights and not really good at delivering insights in a predictable manner, right? You can have unpredictable insights, but when you're trying to build systems that run reliably, it's really hard to rely on something that you can't easily comprehend, that you can't question, why did you do that? Yeah. And therefore, I think it's really important when we're designing systems, whether they be for observability or whether they be for anything else, like healthcare or decisions about whether to give someone a loan, that they be transparent. And if you can't have that transparency, if you can't debug them, then you're building something that you're never able, going to be able to get to run reliably you and repeatedly. hold someone accountable for something that you can't explain. I don't know. I read recently about uh, parole hearings that are being done by algorithms oh, in God, place. No. You know, and it, it turned out later, as no one could have predicted, that the algorithms became very racist. The algorithms are not impartial. No one could have. They're uh, not, no one could have predicted this, right? They're, they're not unbiased. <laughs> algorithms are human artifacts, and they contain all of the preconceptions of the people who built them. And not to pick on Google, Liz, I apologize, but this is my go-to example, but it's Google Buzz. I was reading Harriet Jacobs' blog before Google Buzz came out. She was a, That's a pseudonym for a woman who was on the run from an abusive husband, Oh, yes, I remember this. Yeah. And because yeah. Google Buzz connected you to your friends of friends' contact details, her ex-husband hunted her down. And there were people within Google, I know this, who said, this is a really bad idea. And they were shouted down by the people who said, no one should have anything to hide. Sure, in a perfect world. And to the first approximation, which is if you're a straight white dude, there's nothing to hide. But for the rest of us, life is really complicated and gnarly. And algorithms that don't acknowledge that are actively dangerous. Yeah, it's definitely really important to have people who are marginalized involved in the design of these algorithms. And I do think that eventually we'll have explainable AI. But I think that's an open research area. That's not something that's coming anytime in the next year or two, right? Yeah. Like the robots are not immediately coming for us. And in the long term, if we involve the right set of people and think about the most challenging problems rather than slapping AI on, on everything, 
then sure, maybe one day the robots will let us go and do more productive because things I just, with our time. I just look at it like, okay, but what what about when the AI breaks? Yeah, totally. The, the more mysterious it is, it's kind of like the difference between the old cars that anyone with a wrench in and some eyes could like figure out, and the new ones where it's like, where do I start? Like, it's I have an to, electric like, be, spaceship. Yes, yeah, and and then sometimes it's great, and sometimes if like if you're trying to fix things or say if your entire society relies on these things, um, you need to have people who are capable of understanding them. It would be really nice if we knew what happens inside. Bold voting machines, for example. Liz, I wanted to jump on that word explainability, explainable AI. Can you unpack that? That sounds super fascinating. It's really important for humans to be able to understand about their systems. How are decisions being made? Where are they coming from? What factors do they are they taking into account, kind of, and what combination of factors is leading them to make decisions, right? Even knowing what are the inputs, how are they being weighted? Kind of how could you change the outcome, right? Like if someone gets turned down for a loan, what factors would cause them to get it's the loan in the future? It's just needing there to be an audit trail, right? Reproducibility, if one person has these results and another person should be able to understand it and, and get the same results. Yes, exactly. And also being able to get some degree of consistency, right? Mm. And knowing when you change your algorithms, is it is it leading to a better experience for which users? Is it leading to a worse experience for which users, right? Like those things are things that are tricky to get right if you don't think about them. The phrase, it just works, has always terrified me. Yeah, yeah. So Nothing is really magic. No, it turns out. In practice, it sounds like that would include adding metadata and adding structured events and adding audit trails to decision-making pieces of software. I'm trying to visualize how that would actually work. It's an oblog, basically. Like, being able to list and articulate all of the inputs that come in and their dependencies, and then the sequence of decisions that are made. And being able to see what happens if you change these factors, yeah. right? How much does it influence it? Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to have to Google some more about that. Which comes first, the tool or the profound culture change? There's a need to have both tooling to facilitate your culture change as well as to have some kind of direction that the culture change is coming from. It's very rare to see, especially in large enterprises, grassroots efforts succeed on their own without some kind of champion, Mm -hmm. without someone who's willing to provide that air cover to say, you know what, yes, we want to do this, let's do this. And then, yes, the tooling can help you, but... Tooling by itself doesn't really actually motivate people to change the way that they work. I think of it more like rocks in the stream. Like, we don't like to change things because it's hard. And if the river is flowing and a tool is there, we're just going to flow around it until, you know. Interpret it as damage. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We're not going to, like, try and flow into it harder. So I do think that tooling shapes our behaviors in so many ways that are very implicit, that we don't stop and think about, that we aren't conscious of. And one of the things I think about is, like, on-call. The tools that we use for on-call matter. And like the amount of thought that goes into this is usually quite shallow. It's what have I used Mm -hmm. before? What's the quickest, fastest thing that I can get started doing? And yet, you know, people are going to be woken up in the middle of the night. It's going to impact their ability to plan their vacations, their sleep, their family. Yeah, that's definitely a thing that often happens is that when people are under pressure, they don't necessarily have time to think about how do they change the situation for the future when they're under pressure, right? You have to allocate time towards doing that. You have to make sure that people have the room to do it. If you have people that are completely disconnected from the production operations of their system, they're never going to design useful tooling. If you have people that are completely immersed in the production running their system of no time to write tools, that's also not great either. So you kind of have to be somewhere in that happy middle 
where you know enough about your systems to know what tooling is useful to write and have the time to write the tooling. I think of this as kind of the software ownership. The end state of DevOps is everybody ships code and everybody supports what they ship. Supporting the code that someone else wrote is terrible because you don't have the context. And, and I'm talking about early stuff, like right yeah, after it yeah. shift. Once it's stable, you know, you can hand it off to teams of people to maintain it. But Maybe all code needs to be explainable. Well, yeah, very much so. Yeah, and I think that one of the interesting things about that is even if people are supporting their own code, different people have different abilities to do that and different interest in doing that. So it's a matter of cultivating those skills, right? Yeah. Making it possible for people to level up rather than perceiving that as, you know, I don't do that or I'm awful exactly. at that, I'm never going to do it. And a lot of this comes down to prestige. Mm-hmm. Like we've kind of yeah. kicked around ops for a long time and so nobody perceives there as being prestige in learning how to operate their own systems. Well, I say nobody, but that's not actually true. I've worked at places where operations was highly Name valued. those places. Linden Lab. Yeah. Um, honeycomb. Uh, Parse. Yeah. All three of them. Yeah. Very, very And much interestingly, valued. all three companies are likely to put out a generation of Amazing. engineers yes. who are, are really yeah. unusually skilled. I've found that um, the, ops team, the people who operate software tend to have a tighter, cohesive bond and identity than mm-hmm. any other engineering team. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because there's that element of you're in the trenches together, you're the last line of defense. There, there's some really cool like psychological benefits that you can leverage. I've had other engineering managers ask me how they can get their teams to feel as like cohesive and like and have as much fun as my team does and I'm like put them on call. That's mm. true up to a point though, right? Like you can well, have situations where you get point. hero culture, you can have situations of firefighting culture. It's like putting mm-hmm. salt in your dinner. Yep. You don't dump a cup in. <laughs> you dump a couple teaspoons and it makes it flavorful. Mm, there have to be I stakes. love that analogy. Right? There, have to be, there has to be some amount of high stakes now and then to like make you taste life to the fullest. Yeah, it's it's somewhere between Marine Corps morale and actual shell shock. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and I think that that goes back to having a community of practice, right? And as you said, having equal parity of esteem. Have, yeah. To have people feel like they're valued in doing this work. Senior engineers have to really live out these principles because other engineers, junior engineers, everybody knows who the best engineers and everybody is watching them because we're hierarchical beings. Mm-hmm. We're hairless monkeys, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it's really important for those people to model the values that you want your entire team to display. And I hate to bring it up, but I think there's a real toxic masculinity at play here as well. There's so much esteem uh, granted to someone who's seen as a firefighter, a first responder. Yeah, instead of being like know. a servant supporter. Someone into public safety, someone who goes yeah. and like investigates an aviation accident mm-hmm. and documents exactly what went down. And yet the latter saves so many more lives. Yeah. It's so much more highly leveraged. And that's why I highly recommend both a talk by Tanya Riley on the history of fire escapes and the history of fire codes. Like that's an amazing talk. And also other people like Alice Goldfuss that have mentioned things about, you know, how we need to focus on not having this macho culture and having a culture of being able to celebrate people who are just making the, the world better in a quiet fashion. Okay, yeah. so now I'm double fangirling, not only that I'm in a room with you, Liz, but also that we mentioned Alice Goldfuss. So yeah, I'll just wither into a heap. What happens to cloud native apps as they scale up and up? Is the curve continuous or are there step changes? I think the treacherous part of it is that it looks continuous, but that there are step changes, mm. right? That as you build systems, you often don't think about the technical debt and complexity that you're introducing until one day you realize that you no longer understand your system or that your herd of individual pets has become cattle and yet you're still dealing with them as if they're individual pets, yeah. right? Like. That kind of a situation just creeps up on you one day until it smacks you in the face. Yeah, I've always heard and and said that you cannot design a a solution for more than 10x your current problem. You don't know what the breaking point is going to be. You don't know what the extra variable, you don't know what is going to have changed. You don't know what is going to break first. All you can know with some amount of certainty is that 
something will break. And conversely, if you use something that's adapted for someone else 10 times your size, oh. that's not going to work well no, no, either. No, not at all. Uh, no, we all have specific workloads, it turns out. And for platforms, this is extra important because a platform, in my mind, is a system that you've built where you're inviting everyone else's chaos to come live in your house. Mm, like You I don't have that. the ability to like track down those engineers and make them change their query. You just have to make it work and not affect anyone else in the house. Wait, wait, this is extremely disturbing. As a VC, I'm in the business of selling people the stuff that Google uses oh, when yes. In fact, it's the stuff that Google used Everything 10 years ago. But <laughs> and, Well, there's that too. I'm constantly entertained by people who are like, this is what Google used. And like the Googlers are just like, no, 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 it's not. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's what people are getting wrong about S3 outside of Google, that they're kind of taking away this idealized image of Google and thinking, oh, I can just adapt this without regard to what my current context is. And that's not even what we're doing at Google, yeah. right? And I think that the number way that that manifests is getting back to our earlier conversation about how people hire and kind of how people get into the industry, people have this conception that every single SRE that they hire needs to be a battle-tested veteran sysadmin who can also code and has a computer science degree from a top 10 school. And like those people are very few and far between, and you'd be much better off kind of investing in building people's skills. People will spend six months looking for their unicorn, trying to recruit one, when they could have trained one or built one, you know, some hungry new grad in half that time. And how often have you worked in a company where somebody from a big name competitor parachutes in, spends six months resting and investing, are wrong. and goes off to the or next thing? Or they're just breaking things because they're so sure that Google does it this way, so or that big, must be right. You or the big change. company got rid of them. Yeah, so, yes. <laughs> One of my friends says that there's no such thing as a good ex-Google engineer because <laughs> they often leave, but then Google knows which ones they are, and they always lure them back with a lot of cash, or they know they weren't that good, and they just let them go. Yeah. Which, in my experience, is you can round that down to true. <laughs> Liz, you've talked about how your ultimate goal is to empower people and make them more productive. And that's one of the reasons we're gleeful to have you on the show, because that's ours too. How does observability fit your goals, if at all? I think that part of what's going on in IT operations right now is a change in how we approach our operations. And observability is one piece of many pieces in the change that we're making. So therefore, kind of this change that we're doing is making people more productive, right? Like it's enabling a team of 10 people to manage way more complexity and way more services and way more scale than they could five or 10 years ago. And I think that that's amazing. And I want to share it with so many people. Like a lot of my customers, for instance, are big banks and they're used to running things in the same way that they've run things for five or 10 or 15 or 20 years and kind of showing them that, hey, there is a better way of doing things and yeah. there are some techniques that you can borrow from our playbook. Take the ones that you need, right? Leave them behind the ones that don't work for you. But kind of we can help you become more productive and empowered. And I think that that's amazing, right? To have all of these people that are like suffering from lack of parity of esteem of the, of the ops and telling them, you know what? You have a valuable and important skill, here's how to leverage it, here's how to feel empowered. Yeah. I think that a thing that we struggle with a lot and that is hard to talk to people, people are used to hearing happy talk. Oh, do this and everything will be better. It's so much so that they kind of don't believe it when you tell them that, even when it's true. When in fact, the newer ways of doing things, like doing observability-driven development where you lead by instrumenting and you check yourself by instrumenting, it is better. And it is better for humans. You build more understandable systems. You don't get woken up as much. You don't have to change context as much. You can take over other people's software so much more easily. And it feels like software that you wrote too. The battled ways are bad. <laughs> uh, and there are the benefits of switching to a world where software engineers are. Software engineers being on call is was one of those points, sticking points, right? 
I get it. We have a real problem with masochism in operations. We're not saying, all right, software engineers, come be masochists with us. We're saying, okay, it's time for the masochism to stop. We need to adopt the software engineering principles that will make our systems better. And we also need to shorten these feedback loops. Everyone wins. It is a better world. It's a difference between a local maximum and a global maximum, I think, is that people have gotten stuck in this rut of, I can make my systems work better by outsourcing the operations to someone else, right? Through whatever it means, they've got it working, and they, they are clutching to it with white knuckles because it's fragile and they're afraid it's going to vanish, right? And what breaks systems? Well, usually it's introducing change. So they're like, ah, I'm going to introduce change to the system? Really? I just got a handle on it. And the example of banks is super interesting because their environment is so fundamentally different from any of these scale-out apps in the Valley. And their architecture, I mean, they're still running IBM mainframes. There's still microcomputers in there. There's probably still a, a deck vax uh, running somebody's general ledger. And yet they're experimenting too, right? Like- right, right. I spent a lot of time with the banks, um, first with VMware and then with Docker, because the idea that they could encapsulate that complexity and present a new set of interfaces to younger people coming into the workforce so that they didn't have to learn all of the layers behind them was super interesting to them. If you don't experiment, you die. And like banks might be like lagging in tech, but they're good at business and they know this. Yeah. And one of the things that keeps them in business is being very, very risk averse. Except but when. also looking at the cutting edge all the time. Yeah, they some absolutely the people, look at the cutting edge. Some of the first people to reach out to us were like Barclays. Yeah, well, they have a real interest in keeping their systems up and yeah. in understanding what went wrong when it went wrong because their downtime can be measured it's in real. millions of dollars. Yeah. yeah. So getting back into why do I care about observability, <laughs> right? Like I think that it's really important for people who are contemplating making these kinds of leaps to have the right tooling to support it, to know what are the best practices and to have them implemented for them. And it's also a way of doing this incrementally, right? Of introducing, without having to make a big bang, you know, switch from one system to another, you do it with steps, right? And you check yourself with observability. That's how you gain confidence in what you're actually doing. And that's what I was trying to get to earlier. Is observability a way to make systems explain themselves? Yeah, absolutely. Instrumentation is the way that the software explains itself back to us. Yeah, and you can't even do a successful migration without knowing did you make it better, right? If you don't have the metrics, you're not being going to be able to tell. Did you do it completely? Yeah. It will always be different. Do you know how? What is time? What are numbers? (laughs) No, it's true. Like I've become accustomed to having such fine-grained visibility into my systems. And I think back to some of the database upgrades that I did, my my SQL, you know, 4.1 to 5.0. I didn't know. Did it work? Well, it seems to be up. Site seems to be working. Log in once or twice. Yep, carry on. Terrifying to me now. Yeah. never do that. And we need to have both kind of the top-level serviceable objectives. Are things actually working correctly? Are you confident that your customers are happy? As well as the ability to dive in when your serviceable yeah. objectives are in danger. Yeah. Um, I really like what Google has done just to proselytize the SLOs and SLAs because that, to me, um, has forced engineers to start thinking more about business and users. Mm-hmm. The fact that you're Beautiful nines actually don't matter if your users are not happy. Either there you're not it is. Capturing, you're Charity's not captured. catchphrase. <laughs> Take a drink. It's going to be on my, be on my <laughs> gravestone. But but seriously, I there was a month when like at Parse, you know, our uptime was ninety nine point nine nine percent, and I just looked at it and went, people are complaining all the time. Mm-hmm. Either we're not measuring the right thing, or well, something's wrong. Yeah, Liz, we've both come up with you know, super positive stereotypes about Google and super negative stereotypes. I'm guessing that the truth is somewhere in the middle. 
What are the kinds of things that people get wrong about the inside of Google and especially SRE? I think there's definitely a myth that every single team at Google has SREs, that, and that's absolutely wrong. SREs build the platform that everyone else uses. And sure, uh, some services do have SRE support, but it's almost a failure of complexity if you need to have a dedicated SRE team for your service. You're much better off served building on top of the platform and managing it yourself. And everyone's on call. Yeah. yeah. So how does that compare to the infra team within Facebook? Is it exact analogy or is it different? Facebook's the same. Production engineering, some teams have, you know, one or two um, that are in rotation just as software engineers. Uh, Sometimes they just, software engineers don't get PE support until their service is of a particular quality, so it's supportable. It's kind of the carrot (laughs) and the stick. Some teams are like half and half production and SREs, but there's about a 7 to 1 ratio, 10 to 1 ratio for software engineers to PEs, so they're pretty rare. They're they're kind of an unusual skill set. And yeah, how that's many? about the same for Google as well, right? Like yeah. there are about 2,000 SREs compared to tens of thousands yeah. of product development software engineers. Makes sense. And how many other companies would you sort of think of in the vanguard of this? Maybe Amazon? Anyone else? I actually am not familiar enough with Amazon's practice in this area. I haven't kind of seen a lot they of externally heard, they visible They don't really talk there. about yeah. what they do internally. Everything I know, I only know from drinking with people. Right. So kind of examples of companies that I have seen a lot of things that I respect and admire from include companies like Lyft, right? Like mm-hmm. Lyft and the Envoy effort is like so much in the vein of what we do as SREs of yeah. building platforms that do the right thing out of the box. Etsy used to be really on the cutting edge of this stuff. Yeah, um, when Oldspo was there. They were kind of like first generation of this sort of really living out their values, I thought. Yeah, and then of course you have companies like Dropbox, you have companies like Facebook, you have companies like Shopify, Fastly, right? Like there are a lot of companies that are traveling in the same direction that we are and it's really exciting to have kind of this community around SRE where we're sharing with each other. I think kind of getting to where the next five years are going and kind of the biggest change I've seen in the past two years has kind of been the change from People not talking about how they do operations and considering it a secret to people. To not being able to shut up about it. Yeah, to not being able to shut up yeah. about it like us. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a welcome shift. Fastly is another one where the founder wrote software that reflects his true character. Fastly is impatient software like Arta. We've got to get Arta on the show. Oh, yeah, we do. All right, so we've, we've kicked around the phrase software ownership. What does it mean to each of you? To me, it means you develop software, no matter how small or how large, to production quality. You have the ability to deploy the ability to roll back, and the ability to debug it in production. That, to me, is the full life cycle. And if you're missing one of those elements, like if you don't have the power to deploy, roll back, get the system in a good state, it's not ownership. If you don't have the time to write code, that's not ownership. And if you don't have the tooling that lets you explore and understand how it's performing, um, then that's not, well, maybe you could call that ownership, but it's not, it's like negligent parenting. Like you don't actually, you're not feeding your kids, right? And to me, that that is the natural end state of the entire last 10 years of DevOps. You know, I've said this many times, but I feel like the first wave of DevOps was all focused on lecturing ops people and telling them to learn to write code. And we did, right? It's no longer considered acceptable to be an engineer and not write software. And I feel like the last couple of years, have the pendulum's really started to swing in the other direction. The focus is kind of on, you know, okay, software engineers, it's your turn. The systems are getting so large with distributed systems. Operability is the primary concern. Most of our time is spent maintaining and extending and debugging software, not greenfield development. Yeah, it turns out that there's a fascinating statistic we looked up for the SRE book. It is that you spend somewhere between 40 and 90% of your total cost of ownership of software maintaining it, not writing it. And people ask all the time, is ops going away? Well, no, it just looks different, right? Yeah, I like to think about ownership in terms of who owns the user happiness, who owns the reliability of this. 
And I think that it's important that everyone be invested in it, yeah. that everyone have agreement on how are we going to measure it? How are we going to defend it? What are we going to do? User happiness does not always correlate to reliability, too. Sometimes it's other metrics that it correlates to more. Obviously, if your system is down all the time, that's not going to make people happy. Yeah, but, but Slack's pretty Slack's outagey, pretty and I still love it. Yeah. <laughs> it has to be good enough. It has yeah, to be, it has to be iPhone, good enough. The yes. iPhone camera enough. of reliability, right? That's a super interesting idea that ownership is owning user happiness because it makes me think about Steve Jobs and how completely obsessed he was with the -the out-of-the-box experience and the integrity of the product. Is there some product thinking in this idea of software ownership? Oh, for sure. There's product thinking and there's ethical thinking, right? Like if we own user happiness, then we as the people who are operating the system need to think about how does our software impact the people that it interacts with? And what are the disastrous failure modes? Exactly, right? Like ethical failures are product it, failures and reliability failures. Them? Yeah, yeah. I've definitely worked on products where I felt better about the world when they were down. <laughs> Not to pick on Facebook, but (laughs) this discussion about, you know, on the one hand, Facebook is saying we can pinpoint your ads with laser precision. And on the other, they're saying, well, you know, we can't really figure out who's posting all of this nasty stuff. It's a purest form of capitalism and it's completely amoral. It's a kind of willful disregard for explainability. Oh, that's interesting. Say more about that. I think that you can perfectly well design a system that can laser target things and can't tell you why it's doing it, right? It is perfectly self-consistent that that might happen. Oh, they're telling the truth. Yeah, yeah. they may very well be telling the truth because they haven't invested in explainability. Because they don't want to own it. Yeah. Oh, the software did it. (laughs) Capitalism without ownership. My dog ate my homework. (laughs) (laughs) Should the people who write the code also support the code in production? I guess we've covered that. That's a a resounding yes from all of us. Anybody is going to say no to that. It's at this point they're just going to come up with a lot of reasons why it's inconvenient, and they need exceptions. I think we do need to support people who have, for instance, recently had a child. Right? We have to support people who can't work between Friday evenings and Saturday evenings. Absolutely. I was going to say we're all still using Unix, and Dennis is gone, and you know, there's systems which will outlive us and who supports them then? Is it our children? Is this feudal? No, there's an element of shared sacrifice to this, but it is not self-flagellation. There's definitely a rule that anyone who is being woken up by a small screaming child is not also going to be woken up by the pager because that's just inhumane. How small? Because my big one's 15. No. That still, no. But but that doesn't mean that they, they don't you know do their share. Like They'll be on call during the day. They'll maybe handle extra escalations from support. I, actually, I had a boy on my team at Facebook who um, tried to be on call and really wanted to pull his weight. He had such extreme anxiety. Mm-hmm. He just wouldn't sleep all mm-hmm. week, even if the pager didn't go off. And it wasn't getting better, and it's who he is. He's in his 30s. So we took him off because that clearly was not okay, you know? And instead, he he owned Jenkins' reliability and the build pipeline, and I swear that was worse, but it didn't make him, <laughs> you know, didn't impact his life. And I do think that, yes, we need to expect some shared supporting from everyone, but it doesn't have to look the same for everybody. Yeah, it takes different forms, right? And that's kind of part of the discussion of mental health and SRE and ops and also of humane on-call, right? Like, yeah. I found it really cool that Intercom gave a talk uh, last week at Datadog Intercom Dash. is really doing mm-hmm. really yeah. cutting edge Yeah, of Intercom stuff. gave a talk at Datadog Dash about how they staffed their 12 hours of not being in the office yeah. out of just volunteers. Oh, yeah. 100% right. volunteer on right. And that rotation. was amazing. And that was cool. And, and if you hear their engineers talk about it, it is, a, it is a badge. It is a prestige. If you know enough about your systems to be responsible for and they don't get paid more than once or twice a week, but it's like what they aspire to do. And I think that that is exactly how it should be. It's super interesting because it's another axis of diversity. It's another axis of difference. Um, mental illness is part of it. And just 
temperament, you know, yeah. extrovert versus introvert. This is something, though, that I think that we should pay more attention to. We talk a lot about how to mitigate the downsides of on-call. We don't talk about what an amazing recruiting thing it can be for your team if you do it well and nail it and talk about it a lot. It's a differentiator. Like in a world where everybody is competing, trying to outcompete each other to get engineers and engineering time is like the scarcest resource, just fix your team and talk about it and you will not have trouble hiring. And you also waste less of your engineer's time. It's so a win-win. And stop trying to rebuild things internally that you should just be paying vendors to do. <laughs> I mean, anyone who's had one toxic job in this industry becomes so hyper-aware oh, yeah. of team dynamics. You yeah. can spot a speaker on stage and you can yeah. tell. You can tell. And I think that that's also an important thing, right? Like, trust has to be earned. And therefore, it's totally understandable that someone might say, you know what, put me on the tickets rotation for a while, right? That's how I want to contribute to ops until I can actually see what's your team's on-call culture like, right? Yeah. We all have different ways that we contribute. And I think that the most important thing when we talk about ownership is, are you involved mm. enough in the system to understand its production characteristics? Are you involved enough that you're going to not throw a heap of toil and operational load on someone else? It's like, I think that the reason I keep emphasizing like prestige and everything is because it's like the difference between norms and the law. Like, yes, you can enact laws, but they're a very blunt instrument, and they tend to backfire on you, and nobody can keep track of them if you have too many laws and everything. But if you have a norm, then people can use their judgment for when to flout it. You know, if you have a, a norm that everyone is on call and this is something you aspire to, then, you know, you can trust people to opt in or out. But if you haven't built a culture of that, then you have people who don't want to participate and suddenly like more than 50% aren't participating. You have to make a law so some people, so everyone has to participate, you know, and then you, then anytime that you're trying to push behavior around with rules, you've kind of lost the plot. It's a delicate balance though, right? There are all these interesting studies about how women tend to get voluntold into volunteer mm -hmm. tasks, right? Like mm -hmm. if you have a guideline, then right. So it's kind of this tricky thing of figuring out how do you enforce accountability and fairness? So how about this? How about we expand the notion of software ownership to all of us who are involved in the production of software are ultimately responsible for the damage software wreaks on the world to people oh, yeah. who are on call, Absolutely. to Muslims who may be on a registry. Yep. What if we all step up and own that and, and try to make things so better? So I think that the reason, the reason that it, that's so frustrating here is because we all say yes, but we don't have the power. Yes. We don't have the power to make changes, right? This is what, we don't think we have the power to make changes. Well, and I think that's we don't directly. In aggregate, we do. But, that, but this is a slow and frustrating and diffuse way of, of wielding power. So let's unionize. <laughs> Charity can't speak because she's a manager, whereas I can. And that's one of the powerful and useful I things. Love, I would love for there to be unions in the tech industry. I would love it. At the same time, it does feel a little bit indulgent sometimes when people start talking about it, and and I'm just like, okay, you're we're all being paid what 150 grand or more a year. There are people in the society who are suffering so much more than us. Maybe we should be putting our. I don't know. I'm torn. We can I, do both, right? Like, why not? My viewpoint on that is, why not both? Let's do both. I Let's know. Do both. Um, all right, we yeah. fixed it. We Congratulations. Fixed it. I think we're done. Everything's Good job, great. Everyone. Thank <laughs> you so much for joining us, Liz. This was a, a this delight. Was great. Well, that's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic or a speaker, find us on Twitter at OllieCast, O-11-Y-Cast. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. Have a lovely day.